During this year behind me, I've been asked the same question over and over by friends who live far away. Almost every time I talk to them, they say, how is it going with your church? Uh, I always say the same thing. It's great. And then I immediately follow that by sharing how hard it is for me not to be with people week after week. I'm so grateful that a few of us are able to be together now. I can't wait until we're all together, but that always comes up. I miss folks. And then I add, the good news is we're still growing. Because we've had to go online, it seems that there are people far away who are tuning in, and that makes me encouraged. But then, whenever I say that, I often find myself wondering, how would we really know what kind of growth we are experiencing as we've been apart? Have any of you wondered that? And that gets me uh, really brooding on an important question, I think, which is, how do you measure success in the church? Not only when we're separated from each other, that, that's an obviously important question now, but at any time, what would count for a win when you're in a Christian community together? It's a really important question to ask so that you know what to be aiming for, so that you have the right ideas about how God would want you to grow if you were going to grow after all. In the end of the second chapter in 1 Thessalonians, Paul actually asks a hypothetical question in which he brings up this subject. So turn to the end of the second chapter, and I want you to see with me how he raises the question of what success looks like in the church. Find verses 19 and 20 at the end of the second chapter. Okay, here's Paul's question. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? Yes, you are our glory and joy. Paul measures success in the church one person at a time based on how God is helping that individual grow. Now look at the words again. Our hope. Uh, that is the future that we envision. If things turn out as we want them to, our aspiration. Our joy. That is what would make us feel gratitude or contentment in our work together. Our crown of boasting before Jesus. That is a sign that we've won the race which he's given us to run. For Paul and Silas, their aspiration, their contentment, their victory is all about the same thing. Transformed people. Men and women who have been changed because of the gospel that has been received by them. That's Paul's measure of success for the church. It's very easy to get this wrong, especially for people who, like me and other staff members in our church, work for the church. One of the greatest temptations is to reduce success to a quantity that can be measured. How many people? How much money is being given? How many square feet in the building that we have? How many activities are people involved in? How much time is being given to church events? More 
is always better, we've been tempted to believe, but maybe that's not always true. Uh, There are large crowds that gather for the wrong reasons. And more money in the hands of a church community isn't always a sign of faithfulness. There are cathedrals which history shows us have grown right up in the midst of poverty where empty stomachs were neglected to add some more gilding uh, of gold to the building. This text directs us to something that we need to be directed towards so that we become faithful, not just those of us who work in the church, but any one of us who's a part of this community should be asking How would we judge that things were going right? And Paul teaches us here that the single metric that matters most for what's happening in the church is people who are changing because they are becoming different as they embody the gospel. The visible win, according to Paul, is individual people who are different than they used to be. That's what success in mission looks like. Transformation. Now, that raises a second question. What kind of transformation? And again, this is another question that people have different answers about. Back at the end of the first chapter, Paul describes clearly the kind of transformation that was happening that was a victory. So turn back to the end of the first chapter now. These words I read aloud a few weeks back, and I didn't talk about them, but we're going to come back to them so that we can have a grasp on the kind of change that we should aim for. Paul had just explained that people in the region around Thessalonica were talking about what they had seen, and here he describes what they were saying. So verse 9 reads like this. For the people of those regions report about us what kind of welcome we had among you. And how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath that is coming. Now, there are three different changes which Paul names there, each one representative of the kind of transformation that we should be aiming at like a target as a church altogether. Before we consider them, I'm going to pause and offer another interpretive principle for how to read the Bible effectively, okay? So that you and I benefit from what we read on these pages. And it's a very simple rule for reading, but it's important. Okay, here it is. When you read the Bible, slow down and pay attention. Most of what we read today is read very quickly. When you find an article online, the person who wrote that article expects that you will give maybe 45 seconds and you'll race through it before you're onto something else. And so it's written with that expectation in mind. Maybe there's one idea there and it requires minimal work from you to get it. But the Bible was not written like that at all. Okay, this came in a time when writing was very expensive. So no words were wasted at all. And if you race through it, you won't get much. If you've signed up for the daily text messages and you're reading along in the Gospels, you can apply the rule that I've given you now every time you read the Bible. Slow down and take your time 
so that you will hear what God means for you to hear. I read those verses quickly, beautiful words, but they'll be lost on us if we don't slow down. So let's practice this now on these two verses, okay? If you have a pen and you don't mind writing in your Bible or a pencil, you should do this, okay? Look with me at verse 9, and let's pay attention to each idea, okay? The people of those regions report about us what kind of welcome we had among you. Okay, stop there. Put brackets around the phrase, what kind of welcome we had among you. And maybe put a one next to that. That's the first sign of transformation that Paul names. Look again now, keep going. And how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. Stop there. Another set of brackets. That's the second idea. And then one more, verse 10. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from the wrath that is coming. One more set of brackets, number three. Each one of these ideas, if we'll take our time, is how God will help us grow by giving each one of us a vision for what success looks like, what kind of change we should be aiming at in the church for us and for whoever we happen to interact with in the church. Okay, so do this before we come back to them. I I want you to try this. Think of yourself right now. You go ahead and look at yourself and think, how do I need to change? I I know I still have some growing to do. Can we all admit that? Right. So now we can say before we come back to them, God, as I slow down here, help me see how. God will honor that. And now maybe think of a few folks who you are interacting with because your, your life has overlapped with some folks at Renaissance Church. If you're far away from this church body, think of the people that God has put in your life. He wants you to help them grow, and this is going to teach you how. One at a time, let's consider these three pictures of what success looks like. Number one, what kind of welcome we had among you. Paul's referring back to the way that he and Silas were received in Thessalonica. Do you remember the conflict that surrounded them when they got to that city? Paul went into the synagogue. His message caused unrest and social violence that would have made it onto the 24-hour news cycle in our own day. It was so severe. Some Jews believed his message. Others rejected it. Out of jealousy, a mob was gathered in the marketplace, and it was so severe that Paul and Silas were brought before the authorities, and then they were marked socially so that you would be in trouble if you were seen to be associating with them. Listen carefully. Welcoming them would likely mean personal losses for you. That's what happened when Paul and Silas were in Thessalonica. In antiquity, social relationships were functioning according to the law of reciprocity. Think of this for a minute. Before you entered into any kind of exchange with another person, you tried to gauge what it would cost you, and then you measured that against how you might benefit from being in contact with them. And then, if you decided it will actually cost me more than I'll get from them, then you wouldn't have anything to do with them. On the other hand, if you thought being with them will help me, then you would enter into a social relationship, okay? No one who functioned according to that contract would dare have anything to do with Paul and Silas. Can you see why? 
It would cost them too much. But the folks in Thessalonica who had received the gospel didn't care about what it would cost. They opened their door to Paul and Silas. And this is because they had been transformed. That is, they operated socially according to a different rule than everyone else did. Not based on cost-benefit anymore, but instead based on how God had welcomed them in Christ. Here, listen to these words. Welcome one another just as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Uh, Paul wrote that as a rule for welcome to the church in Rome. That's Romans 15, 7. That rule could be applied and should be accepted by every single community that is being formed by Jesus and his gospel, which changes us so that we no longer extend or withhold our welcome based on anticipated cost or benefit because that's not how Christ receives any of us. Thank God, <laughs> right? Of course, whether someone makes us look good or bad is irrelevant. Our doors are open because that's how God is with us. Think of how bad you make God look. <laughs> In our own time, can you see how we still operate according to the law of reciprocity socially? I mean, let's be very practical. If I'm really conservative, I may not want to be seen with someone who's too liberal. What if my circle of supporters find out maybe that could cost me some followers? And so I keep them at a distance. Or if I'm progressive and I find out that that person's an enthusiastic right-wing kind of individual, I may close my doors to them because after all, how will it look if that person is perceived as my friend? Maybe that will jeopardize my standing among my circle of followers or the people that I identify with. It's the same with ethical issues that are divisive in communities of faith. Think of this. Issues like abortion or sexuality, those threaten to divide Christians based on which side of the lines you stand on. Because, in large part, if we're honest, we don't want to be associated with a group that might make it harder for us to go on feeling confident like we used to. So that if we have differences in opinions about these issues, the way we manage them is by closing our doors to people on the other side. I know this happens all the time. Working to ensure that no one sees us getting along, since then we may get canceled by the side that we identify with. That is welcome according to the law of reciprocity. And when folks are transformed by the gospel, that's not how they welcome any longer. And this is a definite transformation that was happening in Thessalonica. And it made Paul say, success in the church. And it should be exactly the same for us. I really want you to turn your attention onto your own social life and, and ask these questions of yourself. Where is God challenging me, to this kind of unusual welcome, no matter what it costs me? Who do I need to open the door to? Like Christ has opened the door to me. There should be a real answer for you in that. And not so you have some kind of virtue that makes you better than others, but because that's how Jesus welcomes us. Okay, can you see how it helps to slow down? All right, let's go to the second one. This is also in verse 9. It's the second half. 
Your brackets there are around this second phrase. How you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. Okay, this is a second observation of how they changed. And this is a total turn in those people from idols to God instead. If you ever travel to Greece, you will have an easy time observing how prominent idol worship was in that ancient culture. Uh, Every city that has a preserved historical district centers on a temple. They're beautiful. Architecturally, they're, they're marvelous. Every one of them very simply proves that back then, folks traveled with their offerings to appease whichever God was venerated in that particular time and place, expressing their devotion in hopes of being on the right side of power. You'll also always find a gift shop nearby where you can buy plastic versions of those gods nowadays. And we saw this when we were in Greece. We saw it in Thessalonica. We saw it in Corinth also, and we saw it in Athens. The idol represents something. We might think we don't have that today. No, slow down. The idol represents the ground upon which I build my hope. It's the source in my mind and in my heart and in my actions from which I expect to receive stability and well-being in a world that's shaky. It's the thing to which I devote myself in order to get security in this world, which is really insecure. The prophets in Israel, these are the ones whose scriptures formed Paul. They were very clear about the main difference between God and every single idol. And the difference was this. One is alive, God, and the other is not alive, every idol. One is can see and hear and speak and move. That's the true God. The other has eyes maybe, but cannot see. Maybe it was carved with ears, but it can't hear anything at all. It might have a mouth there on that statue, but it can't say anything. And it's stuck. It can't move at all. And and the outcome, the outcome for every person in life depends on which direction their heart is aimed. Where are they turned Uh, If they're turned toward the idol, the prophets say, before long, they will become just like that thing to which their heart is turned. They may have eyes, but they're not going to be able to see reality anymore. That's what happens when you turn your heart toward an idol. You can have ears still, but you will not be able to hear the truth anymore. An idol makes it impossible for you to hear reality. When you devote yourself to that thing which is dead, your ears die. And your words, maybe they'll keep coming out of your mouth, but they won't speak the truth anymore. And the truth about you is over time, you will be stuck, just as stuck as the idol is. On the other hand, when a person turns toward the living God, that person becomes alive in a new way. Whatever you think about idols or the Bible or God even, you should understand this, that this God whose word we listen to wants you to be truly alive because he loves you that much. Every person in God's heart is is a delightful subject whom God wants to awaken to true life. And when our hearts are turned toward God, then our eyes can actually see what we would not have been able to see before. Our ears can hear things that we used to be closed off from hearing. 
And also, we can say the truth in love in a way that we might not have been able to before. We can even move and live in life in a new way. And that's what Paul wanted, and that's what was happening in the folks at Thessalonica. And people could see it. That's why they were talking about it in the region. They could see that here are people who have had a total turn, and that's the transformation, the second one. They used to have their hearts inclined toward the idols. Now they don't seem to care about those things anymore. And instead, their hearts are turned toward God. And because of that, they are servants of that living God. And there's nothing better for you or for the world around you than for you to become a servant of that God. Uh, Think for a moment, and here you've got to be honest with yourself again. What is it that tempts you to give your devotion That's not worthy of your devotion. It will be something different for each person, but it will be something for every one of us. Where are you inclined to place your ultimate hope in something that's not ultimate? Uh, Where have you assigned too much significance to something which is created rather than being your creator? Think of that difference. This idol is a creation of man. The living God is the creator of every man and woman. In our day, I think the most obvious idol is money. Isn't it a little ironic that our dollar bills say, in God we trust on them? But the way so many of us behave makes it seem like in our money we trust. And I'm not just thinking about other people. Don't you feel better when you've got more of it and worse when you've got less? Our banks have become our temples. Money is not God. And the person whose heart is turned toward money as if it will ultimately save them is going to be ruined. Uh, But it's not, of course, only money. Uh, There are many other things. Here's another one I think that has become uh, maybe an epidemic in our own day. Image has become an idol. Think of how, how threatening and frightening it is for many people to imagine that their online persona would become the object of blame for doing or thinking or believing the wrong thing. Uh, Think about this, and it's not for all of us, but some of us, the time spent constructing a picture of yourself to project online with carefully managed photos that signal your virtues or whichever group you want to be identified with. Uh, Social media entices many people to make an idol of the image that they create of themselves. And that is a dreadfully sad road to be on. Maybe it's not that at all for you. Maybe like me, you don't have that. Maybe it's achievement. Maybe it's the the image that you have in your own imagination of who you could be if only you achieved those dreams. I can relate to that. Your career, your hobby, Uh, fame, accolades, whatever it is, the transformation that the gospel brings will mean a complete turn away from that temptation and instead to a joyful and free service of the living God. That's the second one. That's a second sign of success. Caring less about the idol and more about serving God. Let's come now to the third one. Okay, this one's in verse 10. Uh, Look again at what it says there. To wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath that is coming. Okay, this third shift 
is a matter of eternal confidence. Uh, what the folks in the church were banking on when they looked ahead to the final judgment. In this culture, that was something that people thought about a lot. We might not think about it as much. But Paul, in his mind when he wrote that phrase, Paul was thinking of the day of the Lord. That future moment when God will appear unambiguously so that everybody is aware of it to judge human wickedness and to meet all sin and disobedience with wrath. Have you ever uh, thought, in light of some tragedy that, that falls upon a good person, have you ever wondered why do bad things happen to good people? Of course you have, right? You know, in the Bible, the opposite question is actually much more prominent, which is why do good things keep happening to bad people? I've been asked that question before. And the truth is, it actually comes up a lot in, in Psalms and in the, in the prophets. The question is, if God is just and good, then why does that wicked person go on prospering? Look at all the evil that they're doing. Why aren't there any consequences? Haven't you ever thought that? Why doesn't justice come for that crooked person? How come they keep getting away with it? That was a question that was asked an awful lot. And, and listen now, the promise that the prophets made in Israel as they raised that question is very simple. The success of those wicked people will not last forever. Now take this to heart for a moment. The prophet said, one day God is going to come as the judge, and that's the day of the Lord, and that person's going to face the wrath of the righteous God, and God will burn away all cruelty, all malevolence, and all evil forever. Now that promise, which was comforting for the victim, if you've been the victim, and that question that I've raised isn't an abstract one, but for you, it's that other person. Why do they get away with it? The promise was they're not going to forever. If that comforts you, listen now, the prophets also added a warning for everyone who would take heart in knowing that other people would be judged, and here was the warning. Be careful when you wish for that day so God will judge others because you also will stand before him on that day. Everyone will. That was a truth that the people in Thessalonica believed. I don't know what you think about that image of a kind of ultimate divine reckoning at the end of all things, but I bet every one of you cares about right and wrong. And you wish that the world would be a world where those who did wrong were held accountable. Right? The Bible says that in the end, there will be accountability. And then it says, but not only for the obviously wicked. It tells me that if I want to see God judge others, I have to be ready for his judgment to come upon me as well. And the question that is raised, and this is what's at issue here in this third transformation, is on that day, what am I hoping for for myself? People have different hopes when they think about that. And even folks who would say, I'm not sure I believe in that stuff, will also sometimes wonder if it is going to happen, what would I put my hope in? Am I counting on the fact that compared to most other people, I'll at least be better than average? Like it's going to be a, a test graded on a curve. Everyone else hopefully did worse than me. 
right? Or, or, or am I hoping that maybe, uh, maybe for me, when my whole life is weighed out, the good will actually outweigh the bad that I've done? Certainly that was what happened with all the folks who went to the temple. That's why the temple sacrifice system was such good business. Uh, maybe my hope is that thing that I'm ashamed of, that I've managed to hide from the people around me, and I usually keep out of my own awareness, maybe I'll be able to hide that from God too on that day. None of those things are worth hoping in at all. I may not be as guilty as him, but compared to God, we're equally far away. And there is no making up for the many ways that I've disregarded and harmed people made in God's image, listen now, who God loves so much that he could never just pretend that hadn't happened. The, the smallest offense against one of God's beloved creatures, which I routinely engage in, at least in my mind, harms the heart of God because of how much he cares about everybody. He's not going to just pretend that didn't happen. And there is nothing that I have done and managed to put in the dark which will forever remain there. And it's true for you too. God can see it all. My only hope and your only hope is that on that day, God will be gracious to us in his judgment. That's the only hope. And that is a very freeing hope because it is always, every single time, followed in the Bible immediately with the promise, which is God's grace is for everybody. This is the gospel. It promises that if you simply receive the gift that Jesus gives, then you can trust forever that on the day of the Lord, he will become your advocate instead of your accuser. And he says, that one's mine, and then stands in your place so that he receives the judgment that your guilt had deserved. And God has decided in Jesus to do that for everyone. We can be stubborn and try to push him out of that place. We'll lose that battle. But we don't need to engage in it at all. The gospel says, listen now, the gospel says this, who will bring any charge against God's chosen? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? It is Christ Jesus. Now, Paul wrote this in Romans 8. Only Jesus has the authority to judge. And then he adds, who died? And yes, who was raised? Why did Jesus die? And why was he raised? The Bible tells us, for us in our salvation. So that on the day of the Lord, he stands beside us and pleads for us before the Father so that we are absolutely and utterly and forever rescued from all wrath. That's who Jesus is. The folks at Thessalonica had believed that, and it was evident in the way that they regarded two things which we must ask ourselves about as well, their own failures and sins and the sins and failures of others. This is the third transformation, and these are also real questions for you to put to yourself. Uh, success in, in, the, in the community of faith is that kind of change where you are able to look at your own failures, and you've got some, and so do I, right? And then to say, oh, thank God they're gone. And every time you fail again, to say, oh, good news that I am forgiven because the king of love has decided to be my shepherd who takes upon himself my own wounds. No worries. 
I can, of course, uh, care, but not in the way that I used to about my failures because they're not me anymore. He's taken them away. And you should ask yourself how you would change as you take this to heart. And here's the second one, and this one's equally important and especially needful nowadays for us in the church. How do I regard the sins of others? Do I let what I would say is their misdeed or their misunderstanding or their misapprehension, do I let that define who they are or do I stand with Jesus instead and say, Jesus, I'm going to look at them just as you do, which is that's not who they are. They are your beloved who is also forgiven and, and the full recipient of your grace. As soon as they open their heart to you, that is who they are. Those are two live questions for us together as a community. Will we become the kind of church and individuals who regard others in grace or based on the old way of looking? Here is the transformation that the gospel causes, at least three of them, and there are more, but here are the three that we've gotten today as we've slowed down and taken our time in verses 9 and 10. Unusual welcome, that's first. Without regard for what it costs us, because Jesus has welcomed us. That is the labor of love. Does that phrase ring a bell? The second one is total turning from everything that is unworthy of my devotion to serving the living God. Do you know what that is? That's the work of faith. And then this third one, which is eternal confidence in Jesus, resting in his plea on my behalf forever so that I don't need to be afraid anymore. You know what that is? That's steadfastness and hope. And that's how God wants us to grow because he loves us and because he loves the people who he'll bless through us as we are a success in the way that the church is meant to measure success. Now, my prayer for you is that you will begin to experience the transformation that the gospel brings in this way and then that God will use you to shine a light for others. And I'm going to ask you to join me uh, so that we can all pray together that that is just what God will do for us and for each and every person who's a part of what he's doing here at this church. God, we are so thankful for the gift that you give us in your written word. We thank you that we can take our time and slow down and that when we do, you speak to us, helping us see the path that you are setting before us. We thank you for the faithfulness of folks like Paul and Silas. And we thank you for the faithfulness of many others who have been to us spiritual mothers and fathers in the past. Now, folks whose lives have been worthy of you as they have walked in a way that reflects your gospel folks who've become the gospel in our own lives. We thank you this morning for clarity about how to measure success in this mission that you've given us together as Renaissance Church. We ask that more and more we would become people who are laboring at love, welcoming others. We ask that more and more we'd become people who are doing the work of faith, turning away from idols and toward you to serve. And then we pray, especially now, that we would become folks who are steadfast in hope, trusting eternally in your work for us in Christ. Then, God, we ask simply that you would use us to be a sounding board from which your word spreads out in this region so that more 
and more, people are becoming a sign of your faithfulness so that our hope and that our joy and that the crown that we seek together would be worthy of your calling. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen.